You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. You think of every single story that happens in one single square meter of a ward over the hundreds, a hundred years or something of a hospital existence and multiply that across the hospitals are uh, grand mythological anthologies of human experience. And they're more, they're as much a thing that you feel and story as they are actual physical places. So they exist in two different states. And while you're there, they walk and change and become imbued. And then you go and then it becomes someone else's psychodrama. So I was born in a military hospital in Germany. And when I looked it up on Google, it just, it appeared in a list of the 10 most spooky abandoned military sites. So the hospital in which I was born was effectively an urbex target for someone, you know, like doing an Atlas Obscura thing or get some likes on Instagram of like of empty dusty corridors for this guy walking through the porch with gurneys and bits of machines hunkered in the darkness. So my own childhood, 45 years ago, is now a spooky abandoned place. Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes a series of conversations around, and excursions into, landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, writer Gareth Rees, talking about his own implication in the ongoing folklore of institutional buildings. More from Gareth soon. And I am your host, Justin Hopper. I am speaking to you from a small room beside a surprisingly busy road in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty east of England. It is my goal through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts to determine and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. I'd like to ask you a favor, listener. If you're podcast listening mechanism allows it. Rate or review Uncanny Landscapes. Hit subscribe or like. Give it some stars or hearts. Maybe those little praying hands. Whatever seems right. It helps other people find the podcast and it's the neighborly thing to do. In a motorway underpass, a group of teenagers sit trading stories of a strange encounter many of them have shared. We're listening to them as we, like them, sit beneath the busy M53, transporting the good people of the Wirral back and forth throughout their northwestern homes. But their underpass is, so to speak, real. Ours is a replica, a cast of sorts, rebuilt by artist Mark Leckie to reimagine this holy site of his youth. In his installation, O Magic Power of Bleakness, seen at the beginning of this strange year, at the Tate, Leckie transformed the brutal concrete of the motorway into our entrance to another world, through which pagan gods and ancient fairies could come and go as they please, a kind of Penda's Fen for the Ballardian set. Leckie's idea is a simple one, that the modes of magic aren't stuck in time, 
they transform. Our folk tales, our magic, our landscape, the way we read enchantment into a place, these things can't exist only as stone circles in distant fields. Our magical visitors are fashionable too. Would a message from another world be brought by and to graybeards in musty cloaks? When they could have, as do Lecky's subjects, hoodies and comfy trainers. Lecky's strange portal into his own memory, into the bleakness that granted him untold powers of imagination, ricochets into a trip I've taken of late. I've been dipping back into John Keel's classic of Fortean nonfiction, The Mothman Prophecies, thanks to the Weird Studies podcast's recent discussion of that book. It's had a strange and unexpected effect. It has made me homesick and, even more so, nostalgic. The Mothman Prophecies documents UFO and monster chaser Keel's deep investigation into a slew of genuinely bizarre events in the small town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in the 1960s. The basic story of the Mothman, sightings by 100 or more people of a giant, red-eyed, winged humanoid creature, is well known, particularly to people from the Ohio Valley, a region of which my American home, Pittsburgh, is an important node. But what has made me nostalgic is not the specifics of geography, but the genii lacorum of the Cold War American folk landscape. Keel tells of aliens in disguise ordering steak in dive bars, of government agents in polyester shirts and Buicks, of the Mothman hovering above roadside diners that serve 25-cent coffee, of oddly-dressed hitchhikers that appear near abandoned military sites, the calm, casual, doom-patrol nature of Cold War Americana. The world of the real Point Pleasant might as well be the fictional Twin Peaks, Small-town America has always straddled the line between perfect and perverse. I miss those landscapes of long, straight roads dotted by drive-through settlements, each with bigger cars, better apple pie, and more demons than the last. It's a landscape of post-war folklore, in which every hitcher, truck stop, and dive bar holds secrets that might transform the world. These spaces of folkloric production, they're the kind that would make sense to Gareth Rees. In his latest book, Unofficial Britain, author Rees explores the oft-ignored in the modern British landscape, looking for the small gods of electricity pylons and housing estates, the portals that are hospitals, ring roads, and underpasses. It's a book, as he puts it, that searches for the first shoots of future folklore emerging from an urban Britain that might look soulless and secular, but under the surface remains very strange indeed, rippled with weird undercurrents. The backdrop to these stories might have changed since the days of merry old England, but the impulse to make sense of the world through our imaginations remains as powerful as ever. Rees is known for his books that combine psychogeography and memoir with folklore and a sense of humor. His most recent previous publication is Car Park Life, a kind of predecessor to Unofficial Britain that has already established Reese as a flaneur of the unwalked, a concrete laureate. And now, discussing his new book, and oh, the places it's taken him, Gareth Reese. I've been interested uh, for, since I started exploring and writing about landscape. Um, in two kind of threads. One is the idea of folklore, myth, 
and the stories we tell about place, which to me uh, are kind of what make a place as much as the geographical features. And also the sort of places that people tend to see every day, however, don't really appreciate or we don't really understand or feel are kind of over there. So for example, um, the canal sides and the abandoned batteries, and marshlands and, and alleyways and those bits of urban area that we that we kind of maybe take a shortcut through or that are behind our houses or on the way to work. Um, but we, we kind of edit out sometimes, yet I think can harbour a lot of mystery and that can be as interesting as some of the more obviously picturesque places. So this book is, is an attempt to marry the idea of, of folklore and myth with features and places that might not immediately seem mythological and folkloric. And when I talk about myth and folklore, I'm not always necessarily talking about witches and black dogs and traditional folklore. I'm talking about stories, urban myths, and also just stories we tell ourselves in our memories and about the places we know and the way that when we, when we think about a place, we often attach things that happen to us or thoughts that we've had or maybe emotional experience we've had. And those are mythic because they're not really necessarily true. They kind of, they, they take on a form later in life. And when we, when we think back to these places, are we thinking back to a real actual event or are we entwining them with this emotional resonance and do they become epic uh, as a result? So I began, I begin this book with, with the notion of, of traditional folklore and traditional places, magical places. So I imagine the classic meadow, old oak tree, thatched roofs, old uh, cottages, kind of old civil war, war, war sites, old fields and rivers that are said to run red with blood, ghost trails, these kind of um, mythological landscapes we associate with, with folklore. And they are effectively agrarian and they come from that pre-industrial age, and that's where a lot of people consider folklore to be from. It was times of um, oral tradition and times when stories were passed down in a mythic format in order to keep them alive, in order to tell stories about their anxieties and their hopes. And they were kind of a, a, a kind of a coded way of passing on information. And they were very much tied to, to old churches and wells and, and woodlands and dark forests and caves places that they would know and find frightening and maybe not be able to go to or be warned away from their parents. So that is what we consider folklore. I think that what happened is there was in the Industrial Revolution that, that idea of folklore changed. So a lot of what we now almost describe as a sort of magical old folklore of the, the haunted railway station or Jack the Ripper or uh, Spring Hill Jack came from this uh, Victorian um, version of, of folklore which was urban and what happened was at the time it was every day, it was grimy and industrial and horrible. But what's happened is when we tell the horror stories now, we kind of think of old Victorian mansions. We think of spooky mine shafts. We think of these viaducts and old bridges, things that were technologically advanced at the time, must have been sort of super modern in their own way, but that we now, they've kind of grown old and gnarled. And now there's as many, I would think, folk tales and folk horror ideas that have come out of industrial landscapes, Victorian industrial landscapes think of these old brick structures as, as haunted or majestic or eerie. Um, so I was thinking about that in the context of let's say a Balladian landscape, so the contemporary supermodern landscape. So now we're talking about motorways, underpasses and ring roads, about electricity pylons, power stations, nuclear power stations, substations and 
areas of maybe urban landscape that that have got a kind of no-go area kind of quality to them. Um, yeah, like yeah. Real estates and factories. And I was thinking, is it is it is it the case then that these things will be like the Victorian structures that we sentimentalise and the agrarian structures that we sort of romanticise and mythologise? Are these really the future folklore? Is this is this going to be where the next stories come from? Now, while these things haven't become enshrined in folklore, what I was thinking is, can I look and see if there is the first flourishing signs of of places that have kind of grown so old and worn in our imaginations that they're beginning to become haunted? They haunt our memories, they haunt our recent past, and they haunt our landscape. And can that be a car park or M6 motorway as much as it could be a haunted Dell? We think with such a sort of romanticized vision of this agrarian folk culture, um, and we think of these people as as having so little in you know in air quotes having so little, but uh, but having this immense and intense relationship with the landscape and this this rich inner life, because their material culture is so different. And I wonder, you know, in fact, is there perhaps a, a uh, an almost political aspect to what you're talking about, because what you're saying is that, you know, when we say that these, you know, that these landscapes are, are, are soulless, air, again, air quotes, soulless, are we removing from the inhabitants of those places that kind of rich inner life? But yeah, I think first off, yeah, we, from our perspective now, we tend to romanticize those people that that life was the everyday. And of course, what they did have was a rich heritage of folklore and oral storytelling because they didn't have a lot of the other media formats and because the nights were dark and gloomy and there were shadowy parts of the house even never mind you know the the, the forest where maybe spectres lay and i guess there was more of a um, a fear of, of spirits and a fear of god that that would have informed it however my my worry and the, i think i was inspired by a series of arguments that came out of uh, King's North essay a few years ago mm. um, promoting uh, the film Arcadia, which may have suggested a lot of people interpreted it, suggesting that that in a way we're losing everything. This, this is all lost. There was there was a there was a time of Britain, of merry old England, that was that, that was true. It was the true Britain, the true kind of experience of the landscape, and was fully connected and fully engaged, and that we've somehow lost it, and that that forces of, uh, of, of progress and immigration and what you call cultural change have destroyed these things. And I just don't think that is true. And the reason I don't think it's true, because what, how, how has the human brain changed? How is our, people are the same. People have always been the same. I don't, I don't get this idea that we're somehow denuded, uh, barren people who don't have any of the same instincts for storytelling and magic and excitement as those days. And while it may seemingly be a more secular society, it's not really borne out by the way that we tell stories and that we, that there's a rich history of, supernatural and horror and folklore that still exists and so I wanted to argue that yes there is a and, and sort of you could say a tawdry nature and a kind of cheap nature to some of the kind of new materials and the way that things are built with a lot of commercialism however actually if you look closely at these things and you allow yourself to open your mind to them there's no reason why a styrofoam chip blowing in the wind from a truck exhaust fume over a motorway is any less evocative and fascinating as an oak leaf spinning over a brook blowing, you know, in the wind. They're, they're, they, they ripple with the elements of the universe. There's as much magic and poetry in those things as anything. And it, why, is the, the, why should the materials change? How are, it's the act of connection that's important. 
the actual mm. base materials, even the base places. So a, a, an old crumbled castle on the hill, you know, where there was said to be a, a beheading. Okay, fine. But then there's also that underpass that apparently someone was stabbed there 10 years ago. And there's the same, there's the same uh, warnings and folkloric kind of qualities we attach to them, especially people who live around them. And there's a lot of snobbery to say that someone who grows up in a kind of concrete estates in the middle of the city somehow has a as a has no idea of how the universe works or has any meaning in their life there's poetry and everything there's poetry in decay there's poetry in concrete there's poetry in every in, in life every every single emotional act that we have if it takes place in a supermarket car park well does that make it any less and of course you've you've written an entire book car park life car park life i try to say um about uh about car parks and about your relationship with them and a grander cultural relationship with them. And, um, and I know from hearing you speak before the extent to which you got out there uh, in the car, on the train, um, into these locations and, uh, and experienced them yourself. Um, Unofficial Britain obviously is doing a similar thing with a much broader kind of spectrum of, uh, of modern site, modern folkloric sites, mm. uh, you know, roundabouts, underpasses, uh, electricity pylons, another of your old favorites. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you did? Were you getting out there and going and standing in the middle of roundabouts? Yeah, that's the only way to do it, in my opinion. Um, I think I, I, there, there are elements of the, of the book where I am just looking up stories and. and adding text to it but the, at the heart of every single chapter so each chapter is a, is a different I just say it's hard to say whether it's an odd landscape object or, or location or site but it's factories hospitals motorways ring mm. roads roundabouts electricity pylons so I would have to go to those places in order to find them the challenge with this book was that effectively what I was saying to the publisher was I think there's an alternative Britain out there with interesting places that aren't actually on your Atlas Obscura lists of 10 weirdest places in Britain, that aren't in your traditional folklore, and that aren't even classic examples like Spaghetti Junction of their type. However, I don't know what they are because I have to go and find them because they they're not famous. They're not written about. They're yeah. not, there was no... What I, what I was trying to prove was that everyday spaces are interesting and therefore I couldn't go and select, I couldn't just look up the weirdest roundabout in Britain or because I, I had to prove that just roundabouts in general were interesting. If I was going to talk about flyovers or motorway junctions, I couldn't just say, well, there's Spaghetti Junction. I do talk about it. But I don't just <laughs> say, well, that's a, famous, that's a famous flyover. That'll be the one because it's the kind of extreme version. So I wanted to show that the flyover near, near someone's town that happens to be near a motorway is also just as interesting. So what I did was that pretty much just took field trips. So I would go to a place like Grimsby or Wrexham in Wales, Port Talbot in South Wales, Greenock in, in Glasgow up in Scotland. Uh, and I would uh, just go to some of these locations. I would just look on Google Maps and think, well, I'll, I'll stay in the Premier Inn here and there seems to be an interchange here or this. So I would just go and, and walk it and take photographs and kind of and try and dwell in it and just see what, what I found and see if I could find clues to different uses, maybe codes on the walls, things like graffiti and litter. I looked at 
the way I felt in those structures. Um, in some cases, I took walks with people who lived there. So in Bristol, um, my friend Mark Hollis, who did the cover for my second book, The Stone Tide, mm. he happens to live in, in the centre of Bristol, in Cape Paul. So we just went on a wander, and then we ended up drifting onto this interchange on the uh, junction three of the M32, which is, again, not a magnificent flyover its kind. It's really an elevated roundabout over the motorway, the, the M32 cut through. But we walked around and in there I found a shrine with offerings in it that appeared to be with some kind of folkloric totem. You know, there was actually little sort of seeds and nuts in there and a few things thrown up the side. There was a, um, a, a few symbols etched into it. Uh, Extinction Rebellion sign was on there, but it was hard to tell. It was a bit of a palimpsest. I think people had been adding things onto it. Right. And as we went across the motorway, we found a doll, a child's doll with flowers in its hands, with its hair kind of entwined with the, the barrier that separated the bridge from the, the roundabout. Um, just there is a kind of, it didn't have any note with it. It didn't seem to be one of these memorials for people who committed suicide or, mm. or stabbed. It, it was just this doll sat there. It was something, something from the agrarian past that I was talking about that kind of leaked through. And those were genuinely two items I found on a random walk on one flyover, which almost felt almost too good to be true, because it's like, well, if I can find this here, then I can find these things anywhere. There's sort of a trope, in fact, of the, of the child's doll on the side of the otherwise impassable highway. These are places that, you know, I want to say almost no one walks. I'm sure that actually there are people who walk them every single day. But um, Ballard would kind of imagine them. They're, you know, they're... There are spaces that can only be traversed in shackled inside this car, and um, and seeing some kind of object like that beside the road is like a profoundly sort of uncanny experience. It it does make you sort of wonder if everything's okay in the world, but, or maybe it makes you feel that actually it is. It feels like uh, energies under the surface and things breaking through from the past, and also evidence of natural ritualistic behaviors in human beings even if they don't realize it even if that doll because it was very carefully placed it was had it, those were fresh roses put on its lap there was some kind of significance whether it was a, a joke or a prank i don't know whether someone it was it was placed there and mm. maybe it was as, as kind of a message from someone to someone else i it could have been a memorial but it was very straight i've seen a lot of these memorials you know one of the things about this book is I go to a lot of places that seem to be intertwined with death, like non-story car parks, uh, are often now have flowers outside them and Samaritan posters and stuff. So, because there's there's a big clash between life and death in these intersections, because obviously people use them for suicides, also they they can be hotspots for crime and murder, also for car accidents. Mm. So they, but they're also places to dwell. There was people hanging out in in this sort of interchange because it's almost like a park. A lot of these places are seeded with trees and grass and daffodils. So you've got this incredible union of life and death of nature and concrete in these places and it tends to be i think it's because of the way the human brain works and this is why i don't really see the change between us now and us in the 15th century because it feels like people do have this urge to seed things to, to grow things to, to, to put offerings and i, I kind of make a, a joke about what would an archaeologist in 2000 years time think of junction three of the m32 in the central bristol would they surmise that this thing in the this circular thing in the middle of causeways with these offerings and seeds found in it were surely signs of a very connected people 
who really understood nature and would travel down these ceremonial causeways there to convene at this astrological, you know, it just, it made me think of um, this idea of, of Kenneth Brophy, it's called the urban prehistorian. And he writes about this, he, he's, he is a, effectively an archeologist, but he looks at the modern in a way to understand the past and sees very much the overlaps and the links between these two things. obvious sort of ritualistic sites, but which even the people doing it would say, what do you mean? No, I just put that thing there. Um, you know, it's, well, how, how often is ritual actually? That, that is ritual, isn't it? I was, I was um, reading uh, Timothy Morton, uh, book in Humankind, he was talking about object-orientated ontology and the idea, this idea that objects themselves have a, have a life and that humans are just one type of life form and other types of life form have consciousness and that objects can have a form of consciousness too, which is something I was thinking of when you get to these grand objects. Mm. Um, and uh, he, the idea is that kind of, um, that humans run on, an, we think we are independent conscious beings, but we run on an algorithm and effectively human behavior is algorithmic. We, we just have a natural, when someone writes a novel, are they creating this novel or are they producing in the same way as a spider spins silk? or a bee goes about its business. Aren't the businesses, the works that we produce, these great earthworks and these causeways, are they as much a kind of expression of ourselves uh, as our animals, our intrinsic consciousness and our being as human beings as, you know, an, an anthill? Yeah, so I, when I look at these structures and the way that there, maybe there are flowers there or there's certain types of artwork there that have sort of symbolic or ritualistic or imaginary qualities, whether that person is wittingly engaging with that structure because of that or not, I don't think matters because it's clearly it's the human algorithm at work there. It's the way that we respond when we're maybe enclosed in concrete or the way we respond maybe when we see vast pillars that reach up to a, a flyover in the same way as an awe-inspiring cathedral might give a certain emotion. I don't see that that doesn't work on humans, whether we are aware of it or not. And so I'm less interested in if someone says, well, I just put that doll there for a laugh. I'll say, well, you, but you didn't, it's a laugh because it happens on a motorway interchange. Why is that funny? It's because it's, you're, you're reacting to this structure and it's humans run on, like I think, if you think of the humans running on algorithms, all these behaviors are really, are really about who we are and they kind of sum us up as, as human beings. And sometimes I think maybe we get more of that sense by looking at things like motorway interchanges and the way we react to electricity pylons or, or flyovers or industrial estates as we do in maybe in nature. In 1973, Richard Maybe wrote The Unofficial Countryside, which is a book about how disputing the idea that these the set pieces of nature, you know, the meadows, the lakes, and the woodlands and the mountains are somehow separate from us and that therefore we go and see nature, it's over there, and that there's a kind of over here is which which is where we live, and that, that this doesn't have nature. This is of uh, no interest. So he challenged this by writing a book about the kind of places that I was first walking around in, in, in Hackney back in the late uh, 2000s, which were kind of by canals, by old factories, by railway bridges, marshlands, the fringes of, sort of urban estates and industrial estates. 
and even within towns, you know, there's kind of weird crypto foresty bits of towns near canals where kind of nature flourishes. And he was looking at all the wilderness, the wildlife, the animals that, that flourished in these, what you would think of as inhospitable or non-picturesque or non-official kind of places. He called it the unofficial countryside. Effectively, it's, it's, the, it's the countryside that's within the urban space and that things will flourish and grow wherever, wherever there is a chance for life. And this was something that influenced me when I was writing my first book, Marshland, because that pretty much was the unofficial countryside landscape. It really was the archetypal edge land, as we would call them. So it's kind of ex-industrial. Some of it's been given over to nature. Some of it has been sort of commercialised and turned into parkland. Other bits are kind of random and there's fields of junkyards and just bits that haven't really been sorted out yet at all. A kind of chaos as well. And it's full of life and full of hogweed and kingfishers and spawning fish and old tales of saber-toothed tigers and headless bears and all this kind of folkloric stuff as well. And so as I was doing that, Richard maybe talks really about uh, biology and I guess about plant life. But what I became really interested in in my first book, Marshland, was about the story. So for me, it was the ravers that were having parties in the, in the, in behind the reservoir. It was, it was the headless bear, it was the sightings of bears. Why do bears keep getting seen in this place? Why do we tell stories about bears in this edge land? And I began, to, my first book, Marshland, was really a kind of collection of stories, taking local myths, but also adding my own, to kind of create an imaginative life of this place. Um, Unofficial Britain happened when I, when I moved away from London. I wanted to carry on doing this, but I didn't know really what location I was interested in yet. And I, I thought, well, I'll just do a, a site that is inspired by this idea of unofficial countryside, and call it Unofficial Britain. And the idea is effectively that even in the most bland, corporate, inhospitable, seemingly mundane, seemingly uninteresting places, even in those places, the seeds of human stories and human imagination can take root and flourish, given enough time. Mm. And it's particularly when cracks appear in those places, particularly when events start to happen, they become storied, they become layered. That's when a kind of mythic thing comes out. Now, this may not be popular myth, it may not be stories that everyone knows, but let's say personal mythic. So just lots of people have had stories there. That's where I broke up with my girlfriend. That's where I had my first kiss. That was where my friend was mugged. That was where I, there was that weird guy who was, who thought was a flasher or that was where someone drowned. Uh, or that was where we used to hang out. Or that's where I had my first acid trip. These sort of collect together and whether anyone really knows all of those stories or not, I think they mark the place and begin to, begin to kind of grow on it and fill it with stories and fill it with memory it with importance and give it a powerful resonance not that those and also on top of that those objects have their own resonance as well i think over time that pylon on the hill it becomes a landmark it becomes a thing as much as a oak tree or as much as an old cathedral it becomes a thing that anchors people to place that helps them navigate home that becomes part of the structure of someone's sense of the place and that can be anything from a radio mast you know to, to the, the chimney of the factory by almost um, disenfranchising let's say working class people, people who live in, in cities and built up areas, people who've grown up in those places, or we've almost, the, the folkloric traditions of Britain have almost disenfranchised them because they're not part of that, are they? And, and there's a, I think there's a bit of snobbery and elitism and maybe some kind of, occasionally I would say, well, maybe not even occasionally, political problems with this. Uh, and a lot of the people maybe trying to guard this agrarian folklore thing are also, the, some of them are the same people who are trying to guard a kind of old idea of, of England against what they consider interlopers and cultural polluters. And I 
I think that we need people need to reclaim their folkloric uh, heritage, but through where they live and where they grow up. And if you grow up uh, in an estate, and but there's a probably a weird industrial estate nearby and a canal and maybe an old factory, or maybe you live in a sort of massive superstore. These are the places maybe you're hanging out and you're having these adventures and you're having these thoughts and you're having these rites of passage and you're having these changing into adulthood and psychedelic experiences and whatever kids are doing and fights and retributions and those massive teen dramas that seem so epic when you're growing up. They're all disenfranchised from, from this story of Britain in a way. And those, these things happen in backdrops that are, uh, are not necessarily considered picturesque or even interesting, and and you know, the the, super, the, sh the shopping mall or whatever. So I think the, but the Ballardian structures that he talked about it seems so super modern when he was discussing them. I think have almost become much more homely and personal, and, and have been filled with with these stories. And these are where these are places where people live, and they they'll remember them forever. And when they go back, maybe that old factory's been knocked down, or that tower block's gone. A piece of their past disappears with them and it can be as sad as an old oak tree or a church being demolished it's got the same kind of resonance for them so I just wanted to and really I can't really say that for people because I'm not I, I don't know everyone's experience I'm not trying to sort of describe you know how people view London from living in the council estate in the middle of London what I'm trying to say is trying to show people this is a way of looking at the place around you that can be exciting and can unlock the keys to mysteries and can be just as compelling and it doesn't you don't have to stride out into the wilderness you have to pay for a train ticket you don't have to be privileged to do it. You can just document where you live, even if you live in a tower block. You can document your route to work. You can, everywhere's magical. You don't need to be there for very long. And it, everything is valid. Everything is interesting. And if you really take away all the prejudice, there's no difference where you live to someone. Don't think of things over there as being more attractive. They're not. This is where you live. And these stories are yours. And you should claim them and be proud of them and tell them. So in a in a way, it's not, which is kind of what maybe was doing as well. It's it's not just a it's a template as much as anything else. It's a toolkit. One of the things I wanted to do in this book was, although there are what you call edgelands in this book, and there are classic, like a geographic or uh, urban landscape targets, like pylons, for example, um, I wanted to make sure that this book was about where people live. So I, I try to get away from the, the remote places and the places out there, the classic moody, decayed, railway lines and old abandoned factories uh, where people kind of have these can stride purposefully in a gloomy day and have these epic thoughts. I wanted to write, I wanted to bring it all home to where people live. So I'm talking about really edge lands and weird spaces that exist within even a small town or anywhere where people live. And that could be, think about the, the alleyway behind the house or the yeah. house itself, for example. So one of the chapters is about housing estates and what I was interested in with housing estates, particularly housing estates built after the 1920s, 1930s, particularly 50s, 60s and 70s. 
Right. There was a huge explosion in the 1970s. So first, it's housing estates were built sort of after the First World War and after the Second World for returning soldiers primarily. That was an explosion. There were also overspills and changes happened within cities. These were built on old landscapes that were, you know, places where Roman soldiers had garrisons, maybe that's up in Tyneside. Old mine shafts were kind of floated over in estates. One in Battle Hill that I talk about was floated over a mine shaft. What's Battle Hill? Sorry, what's Battle Hill? In, um, in Wall's End. Oh, in Newcastle. Okay. And, um, the, the, and I was looking at, in Grimsby, the Nunstorp estate was built on what was old, an old nunnery, you know, 400 years before it had become farmland. And these places, we don't really associate with hauntings, uh, but they, they, I was talking about how housing estates can feel and look and be haunted, haunted in two different ways. First off by, because they've been around for sort of relatively a long time, like 100 years, mm. 60 years, there's been enough time for people to live and die in them and have these sexual awakenings and these other experiences in them. But secondly, because they're also quite commonly built on these ancient lands that because Britain's so small and these places in the countryside have already had uses, you know, maybe uses we don't even have in recorded history. Uh, there's, there's bodies buried underneath there. There's kind of mammoths underneath there. There's mine shafts underneath there. There's old wells, there's sites of murder and hanging and these estates lying on top of them. So the two phenomenon I've noticed is, a kind of haunting from that deep past that kind of surges into these new build 1960s uh, houses or just the fact that these types of houses have become imbued with the story so for example in Grimsby on the Nunstorp estate a guy called Robin Furman a, a nun appeared to him on his stairwell a staircase in his, in his house and he was freaked out by it but he was interested in parapsychology so he went away and did a university degree and started a thing called the Grimsby Ghostbusters and they would travel around parts of Grimsby, primarily to things like modern estates, like a, a haunted a haunted fair in Cleethorpes. It was a, a car auction before it. No, it was a haunted car auction that had been a fairground and that was haunted by someone. Also a shoe shop in which this man appeared and also primarily estates, lots of these sort of average looking kind of semi-detached houses were having these kind of psychic events. Um, mm. So I was interested in how that could be. And then and in Grimsby itself, in that non-social state, there were two poltergeist events in the 1970s that resulted in people moving out. One was of a kind of monk-like figure appearing, and they were religious, and they were linked to that place. Uh, and another of a poltergeist that seemed to have some kind of OCD, and was sort of get, when it got told off, it would tidy up. And anyway, so I went to non-social state <laughs> and to have a look, and I, I tried to think of what, I got this real chill when I was in non-social states about this thing. But then my point in the story is, of course I did because I'd filled my head with these stories of poltergeists so that this estate, so I wasn't saying that this estate is, is a haunted place, but once you've told, once you've heard all these stories and you heard about the Ghostbusters and the nun and the monk and, and you stand there on this estate on a winter's day with the kind of frozen trees looking like hands clawed to the sky and the, the child's swing just moving eerily in the breeze and it felt, it felt haunted. So that was my point of saying that we grow up in these suburban houses. I did. I grew up in a 60-foot housing estate on the edge of a factory area in Blossom near Manchester and it was my house was boring I guess it was a new build 60s thing but it was fascinating I, I, it was full of ghosts I was haunted by all sorts of visions of spectres outside and I would write stories about it and think about ghosts and things under the bed and that's what that's kind of our experience so why can't a, a semi-detached council house or new build house in a suburban estate be haunted so that was one chapter 
That's um that's that's really interesting. I actually find those places to be phenomenally uh, I want to say British, but in my experience it's only English. Um I've never been to a Scottish housing estate. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing people because people immediately think of those things as anodyne and boring. We kind of almost make assumptions about them. So you wouldn't necessarily go to one of those sort of places and, and have a walk around and because you, they've been edited down. And that's exactly it. The, the, I'm calling it unofficial Britain in a way for you. It is official Britain. You know, we, we we've almost ignored it ourselves. This is this, this is quintessentially who we are as well. And why not write about it? The same as the supermarket car park, which I think is, is probably different in Britain than it is in the USA. Certainly, it had seemed to have certain different qualities to the ones I've seen in, in in America. They are more idiosyncratic and more us than we think. We just we just got used to them, or we just assumed that everyone else knows this. But actually, they've they've got spooky, weird, and idiosyncratic qualities to them. Another example that I was interested in was hospitals, uh, because they exist in every single town, and they are quite remarkable in the sense that most of them. Uh, original buildings maybe that are older they could be Victorian or early 20th century and then they have these extraordinary modifications on them so they've got prefabs and uh, chimneys for burning biomass and kind of these extensions so I was inspired by a guy called Toby Ferris who has a website called uh, Anatomy of Norberton and he describes the, the Norberton the hospital Norberton as a kind of chaos space uh, that's that's hard to define. That can't really be seen as the sum of its parts, which has a kind of quantum weirdness to it. Like maybe who knows which how far the hospital extends. If you don't see them, they sprawl a bit, and sometimes there's outbuildings and pieces of hospital that kind of you don't really know where it's completely enclosed. So I thought, well, this is great because it's like a nebulous, unknown space that has interesting qualities. So I thought I would sort of explore one. So I, I went around Northampton General Hospital. Um, and, I, and I was looking at the idea of it being a space maybe people don't understand fully. Uh, maybe not even the people who work there or run the hospital maybe don't even understand it. And I like that idea of a mystery that's there that people don't really understand. The second thing about hospitals that I was really interested in was when, we, when we're born or when we have an illness or when one of our family's sick or when one of someone dies, the hospital becomes this incredibly emotionally resonant place where... Mm every detail comes into sharp relief where smells of cleaning fluids and the, the, the sound of floor polishers and the voice of the mate ward matron, these things that are, are highly, highly um, accentuated and they become sites of extraordinary drama and extraordinary importance, life and death. And yet then when we go, it's everything scrubbed down and it's this empty space for someone to come in again. And I yeah. was thinking that when you think back to experiencing hospitals, you're really thinking about the story and the emotion experience there and the hospital is a relatively blank canvas. And then I was thinking, well, in that case, if you think of every single story that happens in one single square meter of a ward over the hundreds, a hundred years or something of a hospital existence and multiply that across the hospitals are grand mythological anthologies of human experience. And they're more, they're as much a thing that you feel and story as they are actual physical places. So they exist in two different states and while you're there they walk and change and become imbued and then you go and then it becomes someone else's site of drama so i was born in a military hospital in germany and um i thought i'd google it to see if I, my mum's always telling me the story about eating stuffed peppers and having she thought she had indigestion but it turned out to be me and then she my dad was on my dad was on exercise somewhere so 
she couldn't get his help, so she had to drive herself to this hospital, this military hospital in Brittislow, up in, um, in, in Germany, North Germany. And so that, I, I remember the story about stuffed peppers and me being born, and that's what I remember. It's always this stuffed peppers, me being born, driving, my dad being away. This sort of, this nativity that we all have, you know, that we pass to our children as well, because I'm sure you've got one, and we all have them. We get them, we inherit them, and we pass them down. And when I looked it up on Google, it just, it appeared in a list of the 10 most spooky abandoned military sites. So oh, right. the hospital in which I was born was effectively an urbex target for someone, you know, like doing an Atlas Obscura thing or get some right. likes on Instagram of, like, of empty, dusty corridors with this guy walking through with a torch with gurneys and bits of machines hunkered in the darkness. So my own childhood, 45 years ago, is now a spooky abandoned place. And that, I found that fascinating. I did for one moment think that you were going to say, and it turns out it was abandoned in the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I, if I was doing my earlier books, because this book is, is very much you know, a non-fiction book, but in one, one of my earlier books, I probably would have done something like that. This idea uh, the hospital is this sort of phantom place. But then I was thinking, you know, when we think about our stories and our births, you don't often visit the sites or the wards or anything. It's such a significant place. You don't go back to it, but it exists in this story, but you don't really necessarily attach it to an actual building. I certainly hadn't. When I looked at it, the building was, was you know, more. The previous works you've done, even to some extent the Car Park book, these books have been very much imbued with your own life, not just in that you're going to these things, but there's, there are things going on in your life which are either mirrored or, or at least sort of uh, tangentially come, you know, come out of the corners. Um, there, there is some of that in there, um, particularly in the hospital chapter, but in this book, what I've, so in my other books, what, when I, the Stone, the Stone Tide, which was my um, second book, was about moving to Hastings, and that, it was supposed to be a kind of objective, not objective, I never write objectively, let's say, supposed to be a portrait of a place, a bit like Marshland was, taking in local mythologies and local stories and local teachings kind of blending them together to kind of tell, tell a story about the place. Uh, what happened was I went through incredible traumas and had a kind of late onset grief for a friend that had died and I was turning 40 and my marriage was falling apart and these things, I couldn't write the book separate from those things because that was my experience. I, you can't, I find it difficult to write about a place objectively without it being how I feel at the time as well. And I'm interested in the intersection between what you see and what you're thinking. So in, in Marshland, it was very much a kind of, I, was, I, I just had my first baby and it, there was a certain sense of wonder and optimism. It was like going through the looking glass into kind of Alice in Wonderland thing. The Stone Tide was, the, was, a, was, a, was, a, was a dark book and was really a, a, sort of, a sort of landscape of my mind. The whole book is really my mind. It's not really the place. The place kind of features, but it becomes refracted and, what's and I was interested in what's true and what's not. And this was, it was almost like a sort of psychedelic splintering of consciousness infused with tastings. That's just how it kind of happened, I guess. Car Park Life was much more, uh, it was about that coming out of that and this idea of obsession, this idea of getting an idea in your head and following it through. What happens when you do that? And how does it change you when you become interested in Car Park and you begin to look at this place closely? And I was interested in the kind of peripheral damage it caused on the sides to kind of me and, and, and also the, the humour in that. I was trying to sort of mock the idea of getting this sort of single-minded obsession and, and following it through. But unofficial Britain, the idea is I'm much more focused on the places themselves. I wanted to try and 
unlock the magic. So that required me to, all of these places are linked to my life. So I've lived in edgelandy places all my life, or most of them, and I've lived next to a factory, and I've lived in a kind of 60s suburban housing estate, and I, you know, I, I've, I talk about driving up the M6 a lot. I used to my, visit my family in Scotland when I used to live in Manchester. These, these are things that are very familiar to me. So I use that as a starting point. My life is in there, but they're really almost touch points to show how I connect to that and how those things, using my own memories as a way of illustrating how memories are entwined in these places, how they can find them important. But then springboarding off that to the places themselves and trying to leave myself out of it a little bit to, to get maybe an essence of those objects and how they might be for someone else, which is very hard to do because it's subjective. However, I didn't want to make this book about me. I wanted to make this book about people and landscape, using myself as a kind of example, as an illustration rather than the, uh, the, the filter through which everything occurs. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. My guest was Gareth Rees. His new book, Unofficial Britain, is out now from Elliot and Thompson, entbooks.com for more info, and available in shops around the UK. Follow Gareth at Twitter, at Hackney Marshman. The music was Save My Soul by Gareth's garage rock band, The Dirty Contacts, courtesy of the artists, and Church of Furls, composed and performed by Matthew Shaw, and is also courtesy of the artist. Church of Furls is available from Matthew Shaw's Tex Lahoma Bandcamp page. There's a link in the podcast info. The title theme is by the Belbury Polly, courtesy Ghostbox Records, and the Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via justin-hopper.com or on Twitter at Old Weird Albion. More installments coming soon. Follow or subscribe if that's an option, or keep a lookout on the wires. Until then, remember Jacques Reda. These ghosts ought to scare me as I pass through them, were I, with no fixed timetable in mind and straying from my path, not in fact even more unreal and possibly more terrifying than they are.